The Drum Candy Podcast is brought to you by Drum Factory Direct. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome into episode 49 of the Drum Candy Podcast. This is your host, Mike Dawson, coming to you from Drum Factor Direct in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This week's guest is the great modern jazz drummer, band leader, composer, Jonathan Barber. Jonathan is putting out his third record with his band, Vision Ahead. It comes out May 13th. It is called Poetic. You should definitely check that out. This whole episode is largely based on um, leading a band, what that, what that involves, how he composes for the band, how he balances the business side of being a band leader versus being a musician. Um, and then, of course, we have our gear talk, his favorite cymbals, his favorite drums. This is a really fun episode. Let's get to it. Jonathan Barber. So before I started recording, you were talking about preparing for the tour. And literally the mm-hmm. first question that I have on my list is, what does it mean to be a band leader when touring with a jazz group? Mm. Well, I think uh, being a band leader, you have to uh, have a vision. You know, I think is more than just about booking a show, you mm-hmm. know, or calling, um, you know, players to come together to put some music together. Um, you know, I think you have to have some kind of concept, you know, some musical concept, whatever that is. Uh, it could be macro or micro, but um, for me, um, I think it's about having an understanding of the music that you're trying to play and how each player can incorporate their own artistry and their own genius to it. Um, and in, in today's time, I think it's important that uh, if you do have a band, it's important to you know document and kind of have some kind of product or brand that people can kind of latch onto and understand what you're about. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the original vision for your band, Vision Ahead? What was the concept? Yeah, so um, in the very beginning, um, I started to, you know, book shows myself and most of the members or majority of the members of Vision Ahead, we all went to college together, Mm -hmm. the Jack McLean uh, Institute at the University of Hartford. Um, And so we were constantly playing a lot together. You know, we were shedding together, just playing tunes and writing music, but not really thinking of nothing of it. And so once... I started like booking shows and at first it was just like the Jonathan Barber quartet. And then I started to realize like, wow, like, we really sound good together. We really have this synergy. We, you know, like it's almost like a language that we all created amongst each other. And then we moved to New York together. And I think the turning point was um, when I started doing the residency at Smalls on Mondays at 1 a.m., believe it or not, that was, that was a thing <laughs> before the pandemic, you know, like New York was really the city that never sleeps. And so I was doing that. And so I hired the guys. And then once people started to kind of be like, oh, wow, like they started checking us out. I kind of realized that all right, I needed to get to the next level and really have something, you know, kind of like branded in such a way. And, um, and then that's why I kind of gave the name Vision Ahead. But sonically, I think I'm really big into bands. Like I'm really, you know, I think I'm kind of like, you know, band mindset first. You know, I like to kind of accompany more than solo. Um, and, and like I said, you know, with bands, you know, I was really into the Yellow Jackets, uh, Weather Report, um, 
you know, and I admire bands like the Beatles, uh, the Roots, you know, something that has like an identity, you know, the Jazz Messengers. Um, and so I kind of wanted to, I guess, implement those same sensibilities um, with, with, I guess, my vision. And so uh, ideally, I think when you hear Vision Ahead, it's like you're going to hear um, a group of guys that are, that sound really uh, mature and, and, and sound really good together. And <clears throat> everyone plays like a team and, and it's kind of like this oneness kind of thing. Mm. And that's what I try to push with, with my group. Is it the same members the whole time? Yep, same members. Um, and again, once I moved to New York, I kind of wanted to open the band to a quintet, not just a quartet. Um, so again, um, from college to the beginning of my of my New York career, it was myself, Tabor Gable on piano, Andrew Renfro from guitar, Matt DeWine on bass. And so um, after a while, I was just like, okay, I, I really want that fifth member. And so then I was kind of looking around and then it just hit me that, you know, Godwin Louis is a fantastic alto saxophonist who's from Bridgeport, Connecticut. So this whole band is kind of like a Connecticut-based mm. uh, band, which is really special to me. Um, and so once he, the first gig, I knew right away, like, oh yeah, this is it. Like, this is, this is the group. And so, you know, I'm approaching um, my third studio record, I guess like my fourth album, but my third studio record. Um, and it's the same members. So it's kind of a... Uh, you know, it's kind of that camaraderie of, of guys, you know, that, you know, um, you know, we're, we're, we're in it, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, I, and, and I think each record, you kind of can hear the maturity, you can see the growth and, and, and really hear the direction that we're trying to go into. Do you have to like coordinate with everyone's schedules? I mean, is there like a, a spoken or unspoken commitment? Like we'll do this first, but we have to work around other gigs. I mean, yeah, I mean, primarily like, if I can get, you know, if three out of five members of the band can make the show, I'll probably do the show. Mm. Um, and if it's just like one person that can do the show, I might like bail out on it um, just because I have a respect for my music and I have respect for the direction. And, and I want the listener to kind of, you know, what they hear on the record, I want them to feel it live and even better. You know, I think the record is just a taste of it, of what we're actually capable of doing in a sense. So, um, you know, I try to keep it consistent that way. But, you know, I first off, I try to tell them far in advance, mm. you know. So if I'm, you know, booking shows or putting a tour together or, you know, I'm always like way, way, way in advance. Because nine times out of ten, their schedules are open. So it kind of gives me a, a fair shot to, you know, book them. <laughs> How far in advance do you have to work? Like six months, three months? Uh, between four to six. Okay. Um, and again, I think the further out, the better, just because, um, you know, you have more of a more wiggle room to kind of, you know, move some dates around with certain venues mm -hmm. uh, if necessary. So, um, you know, I, I will always tell people like, you know, think of like plan a season ahead. You know, so right now we're entering to the spring. The summer is is already done, mm -hmm. you know, so you should be thinking about the fall and even the winter. And so that will kind of give you, again, some more room to uh, more possibilities of getting dates and kind of linking some dates and, and things of that nature. And did you study business or anything? You kind of have like a business mindset with this. 
Yeah, um, it's crazy. Um, I didn't. I, I got a music performance degree at University of Harvard. Um, but I will say I have to tip my hat to like just band leaders that I've you know been under and just kind of seeing the game and and just being curious. And I think the, you know the first person that kind of led me to that was Jeremy Pelt. So who's a great uh, trumpet uh, trumpet player. Um, I would say after I graduated college, this is 2011, I joined his band. And that's when I started touring internationally. And he did, and to this day, he books everything himself. And I was like, wow, like, that's pretty cool where he doesn't necessarily have to answer to nobody, doesn't have to wait for nobody. He kind of builds that relationship himself and, and you know, accumulates his own resources. And so I've, I've been watching him do that for many years. Um, and I kind of, you know, took that on too, because if you're a signer or have a booking agent, I think it's beautiful and wonderful, but for some artists, everyone doesn't get that opportunity because, you know, there's certain aesthetics that, you know, maybe society or, or, or certain agencies may want, um, but that shouldn't discourage you. You know, it's just kind of like, it, there's always another way. And that's mm -hmm. what I kind of realized with, with business is just like, you know, you might have one um, you know, goal in mind or, or, or one uh, thought to, to, to achieve something, but it can always be done another way if it doesn't work out initially. So, um, yeah, I think like over time, I've, I've built this, this kind of do it yourself. And I think that's like the best teacher because I see what I could have done better. I see what worked. I see what this person's doing. So I'm kind of like taking all these, you know, isms from, from different people and like just investing in myself, which is, I think the best investment that one can make. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about all your responsibilities that aren't on the bandstand as, as a band leader. What's, what's your, let's go like most time consuming down to actually playing the drums. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. So, um, I would say like probably like transportation, as far as uh, if we're talking about touring, I think that's like yeah. the biggest. That's the biggest one. Um, you know, from the airport to the hotel to the venue, like how how is that going to you know work out? Um, obviously, you know, flights. Um, you know, and 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 really like a schedule, an itinerary. You know, like my band, they always text me. Like they just text me some of them last week about setting an itinerary, which I was working on it, but mm. I had to like hustle a little bit. Uh, you know, just so that they can know the schedule. And, and I think that kind of brings clarity amongst the group because when, you know, you're touring, you know, it, it can be draining. And sometimes if you don't know what's going on, it can just, add, you know, maybe, you know, add more frustration or, you know, things like that. So I think those things, um, honestly, for me, is like the morale of the band. I think mm -hmm. that's something like really important. You know, I try to be uh, positive and, and, and lead by example as far as uh, how to conduct certain situations and try to keep this energy, uh, you know, pure amongst us. Um, yeah, I'll say some of those things that they have, that's what kind of comes to mind. Mm -hmm. That's what I've been doing lately, just making sure, all right, this is cool. This is cool. Everybody has their own room. You know, we know where we're getting to, you know, and like budgeting, making sure that, you know, I'm not in the red or, or even if I am, like, it's not that bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So are you doing mostly fly-ins with this group or do you rent a van and 
book it around the country. Yeah, I mean, now um, it's it's kind of flying because we're kind of spread out. So, I mean, the bass player, uh, we're in Connecticut. Um, uh, Godwin is in Boston. Tabor is in uh, Tennessee. And Andrew's oh, wow. in L.A. Um, but with this tour, I booked some stuff in New England. So, basically, I'm flying in uh, Tabor and Andrew to Connecticut, and then we have a fresh from Connecticut, then we're gonna to drive to Boston, um, then we're driving to New York, and then we're gonna to fly to LA. So it's, it's kind of a mixture of both. But um, but once I have like an anchor date, even like a date that's like pretty solid and, and uh, you know, pretty financially stable, I try to bring everyone together and then, you know, take it from there and travel and, and yeah, drive or fly. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot yeah. to take care of. <laughs> yeah. Now, what about show days? Like, how do you switch from, you know, tour manager or band leader to like, it's time to, to make some art here? Yeah. I mean, the moment I get on the drums, then it's just like, it's game time. Okay. Like, I, I put all that stuff to the side, you know, um, driving there, you know, it's kind of like the, the tour manager hat. But the moment, like, I put my bags down and put those symbols on the symbol stand. It's just like, all right, now I'm an artist and I have to lock in and, 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 you know, create and, and be as present as possible. Um, and so, yeah, I, I try to, yeah, just like, I guess find that balance because I think with music, both exist. You just can't get around it. You know, you can, you know, shed all day and be this phenomenal drummer. But if you don't have the business together, you know, you're going to miss out on certain things mm. or not live up to your potential. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think the moment I sit down man, I'm just like, I'm locked in. And, and when I play like nothing, I'm not even thinking about anything else besides the music. So, mm. you know, at that moment, I can care less about the flight tomorrow or whatever. It's just <laughs> like, I'm trying to hit. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you might have already covered this a little bit, but making, you know, you, you, you've, we're on a path as a sideman to, I mean, you plan with some of the best of the best. So mm -hmm. what does having your own band give you that maybe that doesn't, or what was the pull towards having your own project? You could have been a sideman. You can be a sideman for the rest of your career. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm grateful, super grateful for all the people I've played play with over the years and I hope I still play with some more um, artists that I haven't played with yet but um, I think for me you know like I started writing a lot of music and so I just this vision head was a perfect opportunity to have my music played first off and you know I kind of wanted to be identified as an artist and as a band leader because you know, I think I, as a drummer, we're primary leaders, but I just think, you know, like my purpose is to lead. Mm. Um, and so just recognizing that calling led me to, again, like really invest in myself and say, okay, let me put out a record. Let me, you know, um, you know, write music and let me try to book shows and things of that nature. Um, and I mean, I really enjoy playing with my band and it's just kind of like, man, if I can do this all the time, you know, um, then, then I will. And I think that's probably one of my, you know, goals in this sense, like, you know, if I get called, you know, 
to play with, you know, Terrence Blanchard. I'm going to do it every time. If I get called Pat Metheny, I'm going to do it every time. Um, and, you know, they're obviously established where, you know, they have over 100 shows a year. And I think I'm at this trajectory where, you know, Vision Head is getting known and they're putting out records and people are starting to understand. But I feel like we're not at our highest potential to, you know, have these world tours. But I think it will happen soon. And so, you know, I think when that does, I think it would it would be even a greater level uh, because, again, we can get even deeper into the music. Because ideally, like, it's about playing, like just playing music. And I think mm-hmm. um, that's just our, or my goal. And I think that's like our goal to just like constantly play. Like, you know, when you play in a band, let's say you have like a residency for a week, you know, by that fourth and fifth night, it's just like amazing. And I mm-hmm. think that's what makes you know, like the messengers, you know, so great. And, you know, Miles Davis, second quintet. And like, you would hear these stories where they would just like play at like clubs for like a month or two weeks. And you kind of can hear like everything's played at such a high level because they're just constantly playing, constantly playing. And, um, you know, a lot of times when you just start, you know, you might just get a couple one-offs. So you might not play as much. So I think for me, it's just like, that's definitely a goal of just like, if I can just keep playing with Vision Head over and over and over again, then it'd be like success. <laughs> I'm thinking for like for maybe drummers who are thinking about starting their own band, maybe a little apprehensive about the the finances of it. Did you have to in the beginning just understand you're gonna have to invest some money in this? It's not gonna be profitable right away. I mean Oh, absolutely. I mean, and but I think it's the it's an amazing investment because um you know, especially if you're doing it yourself, like you just learn so much, you know, you learn about, um, you know, how to put a record together. First off, like, you know, you're going to open your ears about mixing a record, mastering a record, you know, like for me, of course, I didn't mix a master, but I was in the, the, the sessions with the engineers and you'd be surprised. You'd be like how much you, how much you can hear. And then how much, um, uh, I guess, how much you'll learn. Um, and so I think that's a, an amazing, you know, experience, you know, and I, and I think, and as you do it more, you, you start to kind of like have a sound in, in your head of like what you want. But, um, but yeah, I think you definitely have to invest in yourself. I would say like save your money, you know, and, um, and think of the long game. If you just think I'm gonna put a band together right now, just so I can, you know, make a couple of dollars, you know, you, it might not happen, you know, mm-hmm. nine times out of 10 is necessarily not going to happen. But if you're just like, okay, you know, this year I'm going to, you know, do this uh, to get the band established. And then over time, you know, it will definitely um, build, you know, and I think it's about the narrative of you as an artist, mm-hmm. you know, you shouldn't necessarily like say, okay, this year I am going to arrive and this is going to be it. It's like, no, like you kind of have these steps where, you know, you're growing and and you accumulate things into and, and the point where, like, over time, you've covered so much ground. Mm. So, how do you compose? Is it is it something that pops in your head? Do you sit at the <clears throat> piano? Or is it at the drums? What what comes first? Mm-hmm. Um, in the very beginning, it was it was definitely the piano. Mm. Um, and so, when I was living in New York um, at the time, the whole band we pretty much lived together. So, um, the pianist had. Tabor Gay, we had a Rhodes uh, in the living room. So I was playing the Rhodes like all the time. 
And, you know, I consider myself like a frustrated piano player. Like I love the piano and I, I have such a, uh, I think I have such a mind for it, but yet it doesn't necessarily translate on, you know, in, in my fingers. <laughs> but, you know, I'll, you know, I'll primarily just sit down, you know, just play chords. Um, and then, you know, something, I'll begin to hear something and I kind of catch a motif or catch a little riff and then kind of build on that. Um, there's one song that I did like kind of compose on the drums. It was a song called 29. And I kind of was like just playing this beat and I like looped it. And then I kind of took each uh, part as far as snare drum, bass drum and hi-hat and kind of put it to like a note, which, which kind of had like this um, like rhythmic, you know, pattern. Hmm. Um, and, and that was my bass. That was like, you know, my bass foundation. And then, you know, kind of manipulated, added some other notes or maybe changed up the harmony a little bit. But it was definitely like, okay, like this is the shape of the song and this is what, what's going to happen. Um, so, you know, I, I, again, I encourage all musicians to, you know, learn some harmony, learn some theory and, you know, try another um, harmonic instrument because I think it would definitely, you know, open you up on, on, on so many levels. And, and, and obviously just like listen to music because, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. Like everything that we kind of write is something that we've heard or experienced before in some mm -hmm. kind of way. Mm -hmm. So like, I think that's kind of part of it too. Like, you know, when I hear an idea, I kind of get this imagination of just like, oh, this is, this kind of can go here with this rock feel, but you kind of can mix it with this gospel feel, but then you can like put this like, you know, you know, uh, big band thing on top, you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. like, you just have this like palette and then that becomes your thing. It becomes like your voice as a composer. So what is a finished piece for you? Is it like, if you were to hand me the score, would it have bass parts and keys and sax and, and chord changes and a drum part, or would it just be a sketch of a melody and maybe a, some chords? Yeah, uh, nine, nine times out of 10, it's going to be a lead sheet, and then it's going to be uh, a piano uh, chart. And because, um, you know, what I like to do is to my piano player, like, I gave him like, all my voicings and he doesn't have to play them exactly, but at least like I want him to understand like the shape, like the harmonic shape mm. and, and w which would kind of give him uh, an idea, which is kind of like the same thing of like, you know, um, you know, getting a drum chart that kind of has like this, this implied rhythm, but you can kind of play what you want, but at mm -hmm. least like this is the basic. So that's kind of the same thing that I do with, 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 with um, my piano player, where I'll kind of have uh, all the, the uh, voicings and, and things of that nature. And then on the lead sheet, it's just like pretty much the melody, chord changes, um, solo form, you know, and just give it to the band and, and see what, what we can do with it. Right. Do you, do you write like intros and endings or those kind of come about as you're rehearsing? Yeah. I, I mean, I, again, for me, um, it, my, my, my compositions are always kind of changing. Like, like I might write, you know, I'll bring the chart and then you play it and I say, Hmm, okay, maybe for the beginning, how about you start it or you set it up or, or let's take it from, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm constantly, you know, manipulating it a little bit just because, mm -hmm. you know, I play on the piano, I hear it one way, but then 
when it's under the hands of of musicians, it kind of has new life and kind of adds another spirit to it. Um, and then, you know, again, if you're recording, I'm constantly open to just seeing what works and seeing what, what doesn't work. And I kind of did that a lot when this last record where I'll, I'll we, you know, we recorded it. And then the second day I was like, man, like, what if we just tried it this way? And I was like, man, okay, that's, that's the take, you know, mm-hmm. because again, it's, it's like capturing or, or capturing the best message in this three minute window. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so like how to be a good host to that message. I think that's kind of how I translate it to composition, especially recording and stuff. So you've put out, it looks like you've been on like a two year cycle pretty consistently. First record, two years later, and now two years mm-hmm. later with Poetic. Is that mm-hmm. is that deliberate? Do you give yourself a goal? Like we have to have a new record every two years? Um, No, I, I, I think it, it kind of comes across that way. And I think like the pandemic, kind of like shifted some things but yeah it, it, it worked out that way um it does feel that way and and what's also crazy too is that all my records come out in may <laughs> <laughs> it's the weirdest thing like like i'll put out a record and then i'll be like what's the date i'm like uh mm, let's do some sometime in may you know <laughs> and so yeah shout out to my publicist uh, lydia liebman uh, at this fourth one, she was like, Hey, if like we've been doing it in May, you have to release this in May. So I was like, All right, cool. You know, <laughs> May it is. Now it's a cycle. So, what, what was the inspiration for the new record? It's called Poetic, right? Yes. It's coming out May 13th. What was the yeah. overarching theme or, or concept? Yeah. And so, you know, we recorded this record uh, uh, during the pandemic, uh, I want to say February last year. And, um, you know, we had a couple of shows um, in like the, the New, Le- New England area. And since I moved back to Connecticut, you know, I'll, I have like my own studio space. And so then that's when I was like, well, let's just get the band together, just record. And not really thinking nothing of it. I wasn't necessarily planning on doing an album, but I'm just like, since they're here, I got all this new music. Let's just, you know, go and see what happens. And then I told each band member to kind of, you know, bring a, a song for the band, which you think that'd be fitting, whatever. And so we just recorded all this music. And then I realized, like, I think we have a record, you know? Because, mm. like, I, I didn't really put an expectation on this recording session. I just let it be whatever it was. Um, and so, um, and, you know, the reason why I kind of chose Poetic, I was listening to the music. And I'm just kind of thinking about, just like my direction and like where I'm trying to go in. And, and you know, as an artist and as a drummer, in my head, I was just like, well, you know, it's not so much of being super rhythmic or being, you know, super melodic or being super harmonic. You know, I just wanted to be, you know, lyrical. And I was like, I just want to be poetic. And that word just kind of resonated with me. And I think the sensibilities of poetry completely is parallel to improvisation to you know the style of music that I play you know just embracing the abstract embracing repetition you know as far as like the language um and motion of a poetic piece like I think those are kind of the aspirations that I want to have with my playing you know I want to you know embrace the abstract and embrace space and you know um have motif, I uh, yeah, motif ideas, and you know, just something that people can follow along. And, and there's a clear message. What I'm saying, you know, I'm trying to 
be as articulate as possible. So um, I think that's kind of what resonated with me. And that's why I call it poetic. Nice. So do you have any like guiding principles or, or guiding lights when you're improvising? Like what, you know, certain core rules, like when do you change? What, you know, do you, do you take something to exhaustion? I mean, do you have any strategies mm-hmm. you use for improvising? Um, I, I think one of my rules is like follow through, mm. like follow through with the idea. Cause a lot of times, and especially for drummers, what I kind of hear is just kind of like one idea, the one idea, the one idea, the, and like not really connecting the dots, but, but trying to develop, um, an idea and like taking like your time to really express and, and trying to be as articulate as possible. Um, like, so, I mean, couple of things I like, I like soloing, like I don't necessarily like soloing by myself, mm. you know, like there are times where they'd be like, okay, and now we're going to play such and such a song, our drums, like open solo, you know, for me, I'm just kind of like, do I really have to, you know, like, <laughs> is, you know, cause it's, it, it's not the fact that I can't create nothing from scratch, but it's, it's, it's just, uh, I like, I like playing, you know, with chords and, and with the form because it's kind of like the same thing of, you know, we're playing a song and when it's their time to solo, the whole, everyone lays out and it's just them, mm-hmm. you know, like they, they, they're going to feel out there and it's going to be naked as well. So like for me, like I, I don't mind, you know, if I'm soloing and someone else is kind of embellishing on something or, you know, it's over a form or over a vamp or, or the, or the person just plays different chords or, you know, I think it, it makes me respond um, differently. And also it's like a texture that I, I like to explore more, mm. you know, but um, yeah, those are some of my rules. <laughs> oh, when you first play your first idea, do you commit and say, that's it. I've got to take this where it goes. Or if, it, if you just don't like it, you just abandon ship and all right, let's do something else. Like how, how far do you take an idea if you're not feeling it, you know? Yeah, I mean, I try to, you know, manipulate it in, in different ways. So it's just like if it's uh, the velocity of it, you know, mm. uh, or like the speed of it or, 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 or different groupings, you know, um, if it's just like one idea that I'm just like, mm, you know, I'm not really cra- crazy about it. Like, you know, let me try to cut cut the phrase in half and and play it i think i think there's like there's like different options to kind of work it out Mm -hmm. you know that i i tend to do um i mean again there's nothing wrong with like let's say you like the idea and then you just abandon ship you know because that could be a theme Mm -hmm. you know like that phrase and you do something different and then you can go back to something kind of similar and do something different so it's just kind of like i think it's just being aware being present and being comfortable with being comfortable in the unknown. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's kind of like what I try to do more than actually what I'm playing and if I like it or not. Mm-hmm. So when you're, let's say you're you're supporting another band member solo, um, I noticed with a lot of young and maybe inexperienced players, they're like listening, they're over listening, they're waiting to kind of be guided for what to mm-hmm. play. So drawing the balance between you've got your direction that's creating a texture versus when do you then get involved with the, what you're hearing from them? 
Yeah, um, I'm, I think it's just, for me, it's about responding, but I don't necessarily have to respond in as like a, a parrot, mm-hmm. you know? I think that's one thing that we always tend to do. Like, you know, if the saxophone is played, da-da-da, you don't have to play, da-da-da, like, you know what I mean? Like, it, it doesn't always have to be, you know, a response in that uh, way, but, um, you know, I'm constantly responding to different like textures and colors. Um, and also, uh, you know, tension too, you know, tension release. So, mm. um, and, and naturally I think everyone in the band, you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of listening subconsciously and like kind of responding of, you know, the, the certain feel that the bass player is doing, you know, the kind, the kind of chords that the, that the pianist is playing or the rhythm or if it's, you know, legato or, or if it's staccato, I think it's just kind of like embracing it all and just like responding to it, not necessarily, um, you know, like a call and response or like a period kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Who are some of your biggest influences in this realm and in like interacting with interactive music? Um, I would say uh, like Eric McPherson, uh, Nashi Waits, um, Lewis Nash, um, Ralph Peterson, Gerald Cleaver. Uh, yeah, I would say like primarily, I feel like I'm forgetting someone else, but like, you know, uh, but I mean, I, I love Kendrick Scott. Mm. Like he's another one. Um, yeah, I was like those guys. Like I, I love how they, the feel that they put be, behind, you know, the music and and, and their spirit and, and how responsive they are. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and as you know, complex and and all those great things that they do, it always feels that it's within the music. Right. Yeah. That's you know? that's the art. Right. How do you? How can mm-hmm. you be? dense play dense but not overbearing right right bill stewart's yeah. another guy too i forgot about yeah i like i like bill stewart the yeah. what the new record reminds me a bit of brian blade fellowship maybe that's just me being a, a long time fellowship fan but maybe it's okay. the texture of the the roads and the guitar or something but mm-hmm. was that a band that you were into uh later on a little okay. bit um, I mean, I have such a respect for, for Brian Blade. I mean, to me, he's present at all times. I just mm. feel like even when he's not playing, he's present <laughs> musically, you know? I like. I think I met him one time, but that's just like the image that I have for him. Like, I mean, maybe when I meet him, it'll be maybe different. But like when I see him from a distance, I'm just like, man, this cat is always present, just like ready to serve, you know, ready to serve the music and just be, you know, a servant. Um, but um, but yeah, I think one thing that I I try to pull from him or or uh, admire uh, with his playing and his compositions is the arc mm. of of his songs, and it starts one way, and then it grows and grows into you know the climax, and then it, and then it kind of finishes in another direction, and so um, yeah, I try to kind of write that way um and also kind of you know think ahead you Mm -hmm. know 
when I'm playing and or even constructing a composition um, because, you know, uh, primarily, you know, I want to make it fun and exciting for the listener just as much as, you know, uh, the people in the band. Mm-hmm. Forks Drum Closet, Nashville's full line drum store. Celebrating its 40th year in business, Forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instruments, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair, and restoration services, as well as drum lessons. Stop by their storefront at 308 Chestnut Street in Nashville, Tennessee, or call 615-383-8343, or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. All right, we got to shift in some gear talk now. Nice. Yes. You've got crazy setups. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I want to (laughs) know, what is your current setup for anyone listening who hasn't checked it out? You've got like this sort of hybrid, ambidextrous, double hi-hat, double bass setup. So what is your current rig and how the heck did you land on this (laughs) configuration? Sure, sure. Yeah, no, it's constantly changing. and And I think because like different setups just makes me play different. And, and I think, you know, like each day, you know, there's just different moods, mm-hmm. you know? Um, you know, sometimes I kind of envy, not envy, but like, I, I guess I admire, you know, the players that like this setup one way and like, that's it. You know, when you, when I see, you know, I can tell a Bill Stewart setup, I can tell, the Kenny Washington setup, like, you know, like without question, if I see the simplest ceremony, okay, that's Bill Stratton, that's Kenny Washington, mm-hmm. whatever, or, or that's Tane, or that's Blade, um, you know, but but for me, it's like, it's constantly changing because like, I'm constantly just, you know, trying to pull something new out or, or, or you know, see what other kind of patterns or it's, it's going to make me play different in a way that I like. Um, currently, lately, I've just been playing um, you know, as far as Tom's 12, 10, 14, I kind of tend to change the, the 10, the, the yeah, 10 to 12. Um, and, you know, like if you just do a roll around the kit, it's going to sound different. It's mm-hmm. not necessarily going to be top to bottom. So that's kind of cool, like just har- harmonically. Um, and uh, the double hi-hat thing, I guess, you know, when I play, I, I, I kind of, you know, use the hi-hat in the same function of a snare drum mm-hmm. in the sense of like the way that, it, you know, it comps and stuff like that. And so when I noticed, you know, I kind of tend to do that with the hi-hat, I said, okay, like having another hi-hat there for another sonic color could could be pretty cool, you know, like, you know, and I can kind of go back and forth between it, you know, with different rhythms, I think that can be, you know, be cool. And so that was something that, I kind of, you know, stumbled upon like once I kind of uh, saw the 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 remote hi hat at Guitar Center for sale, and I just, you know, got it, and I was like, okay, cool. So that, be, you know, that became a thing. Um, and you put so it yeah. next to your bass drum pedal. That's that's the trick, right? Yeah, I can put it next to my bass drum pedal, or I can put it um, next to my hi hat too. So sometimes, again, there are times I've done both. So, you know, I think you have to catch me on, on a certain day to, to see where it is. But, um, but yeah, I mean, as far as like simple, something really simple right now is definitely the 12, 10, 14, 
um, you know, playing with more crashes now, like I kind of had this thing where it's like two ride symbols at all times and either it's going to be 220s or 221s or 222s. They have to be symmetrical. Mm. Um, I don't know. That's just like my thing. And then uh, sometimes I play with some crashes or, or um, you know, a stack or a clap stack or whatever. But Are you yeah. set up most often with a right-handed configuration or a left-handed configuration? Right-handed yeah, configuration. Okay. Yeah. Um, rarely, if I do a left-hand configuration, I might have like a, a left-hand double pedal. Mm-hmm. So that way I can kind of do both. And then I have the remote hi-hat and an actual hi-hat. So each foot has a pedal and a hi-hat. So, <laughs> <laughs> Are you left-handed, ambidextrous? What would you describe yourself as? Um, I think I'm primarily left-handed, but I mean, I write with my right. Uh, I bowl with my right, um, and I eat with my right, but everything else is pretty much like my left. And when I like got into jazz, because I mean, when I grew up, I was like playing in church, so I was playing open-handed. Mm-hmm. So when I got into jazz, I remember my band director was like, man, you got to play right-handed. All the greats play right-handed, like Max, Tony, Elvin, Blakey. And I was like, okay. So I started like <laughs> swinging with my right hand, and then... Once I got into uh, the Artist Collective, um, my teacher, uh, Renee McLean, he kind of saw me switching. I was like, one minute I was playing the next chorus, I was doing this. And he was like, man, what are you doing? You know, and I was like, well, it's comfortable with my left, but I mean, all the greats play with the right. So I'm just trying to, he says, man, do you, like whatever feels comfortable, you play what's comfortable, you play how you can express. And I was like, say less, I'm right-handed. And then once I started to like research I, you know, and I realized like who Will Kennedy was and who Lenny White was yeah. and Billy Cobham. I was like, man, all right. <laughs> like this gives me all the license to just go, go full throttle as a lefty. So what about the feet though? That's the part I can't get. I'm also left-handed, but I play a right-handed kit, but mm. I can't switch the feet. Like controlling a hi-hat with my right foot, forget about it. Did you spend yeah. a lot of time with it? Um, It's... It, yes and no like like there are times where i'll set up like full lefty and just like you know play and it's a little bit of a challenge but it's kind of cool because it just makes you just react differently um for me the hi-hat is not the the not the biggest issue for me it's the the kick because mm-hmm. um not for for me for, when i play the um hi-hat it's kind of like ball up a little bit and so and when i play the bass drum primarily is like like a a heel down Mm -hmm. and so for my left like i'm not used to kind of doing both for for my right foot it's it's fine but um sometimes i realize with my left like i'm digging into the kick a little too much because my heel is up so it's like it's trying to find that smooth balance so that's what i've been kind of like working on as far as keeping my my left foot cool to play the bass drum what is your what is the what are the drums you're using uh Lowick. i'm using um classic maple um and i mean i'm going to just brag on Ludwig for a second uh I, for me these drums are incredible and, and it's so tailor-made because um, when I got with Lowick, we were talking about drums and, 
and shells and all these things. And so Yuli, which is the um, A&R of Ludwig, he was just like, man, like, you ever thought about mismatching your bearing edges? Mm. And I was just like, what? You know, I didn't even know that was a thing. And so with, with my kit, uh, it's on the 10 and 12, the double 45 degree bearing edges, mm. which kind of gives them more tone. And, and for me, with my rack times, I kind of like to tune them high. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just my thing. I always, it doesn't matter what it is. I like to tune them high. Um, and then on the floor time of 14, it's a single 45. So that's pretty much a standard, you know, size, which you kind of get, you know, mid range some tone, low end. And then on my 16, I have a round over. Mm. So it's like all punch and it's all low end. So, um, so that right there kind of gave me like room to really like dial in my sound and, and really just, um, uh, explore it. Uh, in such a way. Mm. Um, and then I have a, a 20 by 12 or a 12 by 20 uh, bass drum, a double 45 degree bearing edge. And like now, like I think that's like my favorite bass drum of, of all time. Like it's it's punchy, but yet it still has a tone. I can still crank it. And I mean, it's just so versatile um, that like it's it's perfect. What's the snare drum? Um, I, have a, I have a couple. I have a Copperphonic. Mm. Um, um, I have a Superphonic that was my dad's, actually, um, that I inherited. <laughs> and um, I think one of my favorites is is the Super Super Series, which I think it's it's not a Chrome over brass, uh, or it might be, but I, I, I want to say it's not. But yeah, it's it's. They call it the Super Series, mm-hmm. which is like I think it's a, I think it's just a Chrome Ludwig snare. Uh, that's like probably like my my favorite, like all time favorite. Are you using the five by fourteen or the six and a half? Um, the Copperphonic is a six and a half, and the Superphonic is a six and a half, and the uh, Chrome snare is a five. Okay, so what yeah. makes you pick one over the other? Um, I, I prefer a five, to be honest. Um, because it, it just has that mid range, has that pop mm-hmm. that I like, and you know, with the depth, I can kind of set it up. It's for me, it's a little more comfortable. I mean, six and a half is cool too, but sometimes it just kind of gets gets in the way a little bit. Mm-hmm. But yeah, a five is, is just like perfect. So, where do those drums live? Do they go on the road with you, or they stay at home? Yeah, they stay in my studio. Um, sometimes. Um, I mean, and also I have an 18 inch bass drum too. So if it's, you know, traveling, um, I, you know, tend to bring 18 out, but, um, but yeah, they're, they're just in my studio, just recording, you know, lessons, whatever. And also too, um, since October, I put together a series uh, called the Parkville Sound Sessions. Uh, that's at the studio that I run from and, you know, I had about six concerts now where like in the big room, you know, I put chairs, sell some tickets and buy special guests and I live stream it. Uh, and so that's another way that the drugs got featured, but, and also that's another way to kind of, you know, have some for the, for the community play and kind of like, you know, collaborate part. 
So, which is, I know I'm getting back into the business thing, but <laughs> you can't stop. You can't stop I, it. <laughs> right. Right. But, uh, but yeah, that, that was, that was a, a, a great way to kind of introduce the drums and kind of get acquainted with the outside of the, the small. Those are the concerts that are on your YouTube channel, right? There's like a yes. duet with you and your guitarist. And then, yeah, yeah. those are, yeah. those came out really nice. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Shout out to uh, Cedric Pilar. who's a fantastic uh, videographer. Uh, and, and also a drummer as well. And uh, yeah, and I, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm not going to the business thing. You know, I think um, that's something really important in, in today's time. It's like not just documenting yourself, but, you know, uh, just audio, but also video as well. Yeah. Before, you know, recordings or tapes and CDs and all those things, it's, it's like good enough. But now, you know, people have to see it to, to kind of believe it. So. Let's talk about your symbols of choice these days. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Uh, Istanbul Agap, and I've been playing them since 2011. Uh, I've been in, probably endorsed with them maybe about five years ago, six years ago. Mm. Um, so my all-time favorite symbol of all time uh, is a 20-inch special edition jazz ride, three rivets. Um, it has the perfect combination uh like the tech articulation but it's a dry but it's not too dry and it, it works really well with ribbon so that's on my left my main left and then on the right it's it's the way got signature um with i think four ribbits uh square that one is like amazing and then nine times out of ten it'll be 17 inch uh it's this dry dark mm. um, and the next one can either be clap stack or what i that was, was i took another if i took a 17 inch hi-hat top hat of the uh it's this dry dark so i'll take the top hat but that's a crash too mm. so uh, i actually did that on my um, poetic. So I had two 17-inch crashes. Uh, one was the actual crash, and one was the, the type of the, the hi hat. Um, and that just kind of, you know, works well. Um, yeah, that's kind of how I got other setup. But I mean, honorable mention symbols. There, there are times where I play two flat rides, which is again my favorite flat ride is the 20-inch uh, traditional. Yeah, 20-inch traditional flat ride. Then I have the A got signature flat ride with six rivets. Mm. Um, and as far as hi hats, it'll either be the 14 inch medium traditional hats or uh, 13 inch A got signature hats. Or lately, it's been the 16 inch 30th anniversary hats, which are super thin, but yet, you know, it's like, you know, easy to play and you know the the the, the timbre and the tone sounds amazing do you travel with those or do you have like a b set that you travel with no i, I travel with them okay yeah yeah i mean lately i've kind of been saving my favorite one the uh special edition i kind of keep that one home um but for all the other ones yeah i, I bring them on the road but now too i must say i'm, I'm getting into 21s because as, as you probably know like i'm mainly 20s 
all day, every day. You know, for me, hearing Louis Nash, hearing Elvin Jones, Eric McPherson, like those three, they all play 20s. Mm. And I'm just like, and it's something, it's something about the feel, you know, for me that uh, I just love and, and resonate with. Um, but I just got a, a, a batch of um, 21s that really just took me away. One is a uh, AGAP signature, um, tr- 21 traditional original, and uh, a Turk jazz. And those, I think I'm going to take those on the road with the Vision Ed tour because, yeah, it's almost like, yeah, it's that, that, that sweet spot. Nice. What are your, if you had to choose drum heads, what would you use? Mm, I'm, I mean, I'm personally in love with the Captones. Okay. Evans, so I'm an Evans guy. But on my drum set right now are the Evans Strata 1000s, mm-hmm. which is the uh, orchestral uh, heads. And, you know, I, um, I remember I was talking to Carter McLean about it, who's another uh, Ludwig, Promark, Evans, Isabel Agop guy. So we have a lot in common. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I saw him do it. And I was just like, I didn't know if those prototypes. And then I realized it was orchestras. And I put them on my kit. And I was like, wow, like this gives me, you know, like the tone. Uh, it kind of opens the drum. And, uh, and, and, and they feel great. So... Um, that's what I have. I have the Strata 1000s on top and on the bottom, uh, cab tones. But primarily, sometimes I just do cab tones on top and bottom. Oh, no kidding. What about the bass mm-hmm. drum and snare? Uh, bass drum, I have, um, it's crazy, a G1 clear. Really? Yep. I have a G1 clear on the bass drum. Um, and on the snare drum, um, on the snare I have on the Chrome, on my favorite one, I just have a Lowick factory head on it. Mm. And I think those, those are killing. <laughs> like, and, and I, I think they only make 14 inch sneer heads. I want to say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like the Weathermaster, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Those, yeah. Yeah. I have that one. Um, but on the other ones, um, either a Strata 1000, still in a snare, um, or it's a G1. Mm. A G1 is just like, can't go wrong. You know, you crank it, detune it for me. And it's, it's the vibe. Well, we're getting towards the end of the hour, and I have a couple more questions for you. Sure. Um, do you have a pre-show practice routine or a daily practice regiment that you adhere to? Or, or if not, what are you currently working on? Um... I mean, I've been teaching a lot, so I'm constantly, you know, have like all these different concepts and hybrids that, you know, I'm working on, like, you know, with some of my students, I've kind of combined uh, stick control and syncopation together. Mm. And I won't necessarily, maybe after I'll share with you, but yeah, it's a, it's a thing. Um, but let's say before the show is just kind of like silence. You know, it, mm. I, I like to just get into uh, just like a mental state of, of what what's at hand. So I'm constantly thinking about the music or, or seeing the potential of what could happen. Um, 
and and primarily, you know, let's say like before the show, I might just get on the pad and just warm up, like nothing too crazy, just you know, just singles or doubles or just take a rhythm and just kind of play it over and over and over again, just to get my hands loose and 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 I feel like you know the sticks and the rebound doesn't feel foreign. Mm. Do you have to have a, a pad or you just pick up some sticks and play on a chair or whatever? It doesn't matter. Yeah. It, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, I try to bring a pad with me, but, mm. uh, but yeah, as long as I can just get, get the motion happening, you know, I'm good. Sweet. I think you also answered my last question, but I have to ask it cause it's been an okay. ongoing theme. What mm. was your first snare drum? My first snare drum was a 12 inch pork pie. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My dad got me. Yep. Yeah, it was a 12 inch uh, natural, like color, like a wood color. Yeah. And uh, that was just like, I thought that was the best snare drum in the world, you know? And, and even when people, because at one point, small snares was a thing. And then it kind of went into piccolos, it went to big snares and all that stuff. And I still had the pork. So his dad still have it. But that thing was just like, yeah. Did you it play it like vibe. cranked super high? Was that the, yeah. the sound? Yeah, and, and and it was the main, it wasn't the side snare. It was the main snare. <laughs> so that twelve, yeah, that was that was the thing. <laughs> so how often do you break that bad boy out? Um, man, um, I, actually, I used it. I did a uh, speaking of that the duo recording. Uh, I had a duo recording with my saxophonist Godwin, and I put it. It's on the far left. I used it on, on that gig, not as a main, but as like a side snare. I used it. I imagine it yeah. makes you smile every time you hit it. <laughs> it <has> right, <laughs> right. I'm just like, man, wow, like, like so much memories. But yeah, it was a, and it was weird. I didn't even know how I like played like the rim on it because it's like the stick is so far out. But yeah, I was like, I was so about the pork pie snare. <laughs> what was your first kit then? First kit was a, a Tama Rockstar. Nice. I got it. I want to say I was in middle school and my parents got me that for Christmas. Yep. It was like a metallic color, almost like a greenish grayish. And um, it was the, 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 floor, the 14 inch floor time had no legs. You know, it was just oh, like, yeah. One, yeah. And yeah, the mount. And I was just like, ooh, like <laughs> my steering, you know, my, my time don't have any legs. It's like in the air. I thought it was so cool. <laughs> I thought it was so cool, man. Yeah. yeah. So, so you got to lug a stand around for it everywhere. You yeah. And get on the right angle for the stand won't tip over. <laughs> I learned, yeah, I learned real quick. But at first I was like, oh, man, you know, legless. <laughs> How long did that kit last you before you had to get something else? Uh, until I got to college. And okay. when I got into jazz, I was like, man, I need, I need something else, you know? And so... Um, I, I went to to Guitar Center and um, I saw um, this DW kit and um, I, f I forgot what the guy said, but he he kind of pointed at it and I was like, well, no, I need some of the 18 bass drum. And he's like, no, that is an 18. And it was so like so far up there, I couldn't tell the size of the of the of bass drum. And it was a Champagne Sparkle and. I guess he was just, and I'm thinking to myself, like, oh man, like, I can't pay 14, I mean, 2400. And he's like, oh no, that's like the wrong price. Like, we've, been, we've been marking it down, but they haven't changed the price, <laughs> which is so weird. 
So I, I feel like I got it for like 1200 bucks. It was just a 10, 12, 14, 18 as a collector's. Wow. And, and it was, it was great. And I still have it to this day. And it's, it was just like, Oh man, like that, I feel like that was the kit for me. So yeah, that was the first kit I like bought my own money was the DW collectors. That's a good find. You got lucky. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I sure did. Yeah. I don't know if it was a mistake, but yeah, I guess supposedly it was marking the kit down and never changed the price. well that's all for this this episode i thank you for sitting down everyone listening go check out it comes out on may 13th um is there any preview tracks on on apple music or something now um april 22nd um is my first single it comes out it's called denim and then may 6th is the second single that's going to drop and that one is called south there we go i'll I'll be releasing and two the full, singles before the record is on May 13th. It's called Poetic. Right. It's Jonathan Barber and uh, I want to say Steps Ahead, but it's Vision no, Ahead. It's vision ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <All> right. <laughs> That's the other one. Other yeah. <laughs> right, well, thanks so much. Man, thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. All right, now it's time for the shop talk section of the episode. This week, we're checking out a really unique dairy kit. This is a European stencil brand. It's similar but different to the Japanese stencil brand. So Chris at uh, Hawthorne Drums and I had a good time talking about this kit, checking out some of his peculiarities, and then demoing at the end. So check it out, Dairy Kit at Hawthorne Drums. This is another, I don't know, we can't call it a mystery kit because we know what it is, but it's another bizarro kit I'd never seen before. Would this be considered a stencil brand? Kind of, Okay. in my opinion. So this is, um, it's an old dairy kit. Dairy. That's D-E-R-I? Yes. So the funny thing was, when I got this kit, I'd never heard of them. And I thought it was like Sari or something, because the D is kind of like script. Oh, they've got the the, the right. logo in the thumb screws for the bass drum. And I was like trying to figure out like, like what? There's nothing on the internet about these drums. And then I realized it was a D. <laughs> it does not look like a D. <laughs> yeah, Dairy. They... um. Again, not an expert on on this particular brand, but from what I was able to gather, um, they were made in West Germany. So okay, I would have guessed Sonar. Just walking in the room, they got the kind of German type. So that lugs makes sense. Yeah, kind of the round over stick savers type hoops. You got the old your favorite. I hate the slotted rods. Slotted rods. Yep, the worst thing ever. Um, and they were made by a company called Tromsa. Okay, Tromsa. And from what I gather, they were kind of, uh, they used to have these companies that would like own, I guess like Selmer might've been one, but like they own like various brands, right? So Troms, I think did drums under Roxy was the like big imprint. Okay. And then Dairy was another one. Um, and from what I think they were made to compete against the Japanese stencil drums, but mm-hmm. they're better. Better. Um, we have the head off this drum. Um, you can see on the inside, I'm sure you can, there's nice dust from the, <laughs> from the muffler that was 9,000 years old. They're beach shells. They got uh, beach so rings here. Not Luan mahogany, mm-hmm. so it's already an instant upgrade, right? Yeah. It's overall better lugs. I mean, I, I think the only, I wouldn't call them stencil, but they were definitely designed to compete with that. Um, I love how you get some of these older drums you can see where they were like measuring out where to put the lugs, mm-hmm. the little pencil marks. Oh yeah. Also the world's over. flattest sparing edge. That's your thing. <laughs> um, so we were trying to 
we were trying to like demo this and the kit has all original heads on it and they're real thin. Frankly, couldn't get it to sound great. So we changed out. There was one unoriginal head on the rack tom and we got it to sound okay, but it was rattling. So we took the muffler off. Um, so that's kind of what. Yeah, that muffler is completely dry rotted. Oh yeah. So that's not, not doing not anything great. except buzzing inside yeah. the drum. So we took it off. I mean, I think they, the floor tom has a muffler. I think the snare drum has a muffler. Bass drum has like a weird lever. Muffler lever muffler with a twist knob. I'm not sure what that does. Does that do anything? We call that the twist knob lever muffler. <laughs> <laughs> Try saying that ten times fast. <laughs> does it make it go like up and down? I don't even um, know. I think I think if you twist it, it moves in and out. Maybe it's like a micro adjustment. I think. Yeah, I mean, cool, but gosh, if this was my kit, that would come off there immediately. G Germans are like really good at engineering. If you look at some of the eighty sonar drums, it's like a feat of. <laughs> You know, they, yeah, spectacular. I mean, you've got this. I don't know how they don't have people on on Mars already. <laughs> <laughs> well, what year is this? Probably a '70s kit, maybe late '60s. Um, okay. Store behind the kit, nothing special. I got it off a guy who got it from a music store in New Jersey, and he said, "Hey, listen, the music store this came from, it's where Joe Morello taught." Oh, is this? So this could be Russo's? Joe's kit. That wasn't Russo's. I mean, um, I don't know the name. Oh, man. It's not Joe Morello's kid. Glenn Webster owned the place. <laughs> might have been it. But uh, it's, uh, the guy who owned it actually got the name. Oh, he said that Joe might have played it. This might have his. It. Well, I don't know. It's, that, <laughs> I, who cares? <laughs> might have been where he gave lessons. Yeah. <laughs> um, Stuart Kaufman has put like a little tag on the drums here. So, uh, Stuart. Wow. We should have looked him up first. Yeah. Got him on the podcast. Probably, probably <laughs> more interesting than me. Um other cool things. Uh, so one thing that's interesting is, I don't know if you guys can see, but this has an, like a three-quarter inch inlay on it. Big inlay. But it's not an inlay. Oh. It's a veneer. So when we got the kit in, we, I took the, the claws off and it just came off. So this is like a quarter inch, excuse me, maybe eighth inch veneer we had to re-glue on Oh, the there. whole thing, the black and the, yeah, all veneer, the sparkle. Which is, again, probably another like cost-cutting interesting cost cutting thing we're missing the tom arm here which looks like it was a very reliable tom arm <laughs> i love it they just use whatever i mean they spent the time to like die cast these but then you get this whatever this was so um friends at brace or bryson friends at nelson drum shop bryson mm -hmm. um and lem they had a dairy kit and it was like wild it was a kind of like a oh a trixon kit and it had like a big oblong bass drum like weird some weird toms on like a i think matt chamberlain bought it but it was also a dairy this is the only other one i've seen so um you want to show them the snare drum how weird that yeah thing is on there again it looks like a sonar from first glance to me so it's you probably can't see this unfortunately but there's three levers in there three rods in there um, and it's kind of like a parallel system, but it's not, and it's really not that great. It kind of works. You do this thing here and this moves it down. And then there's, there's like a micro adjustment here. And on the other side, there's another adjustment, but it's got like these kind of janky, you know, 
strings on there. It's weird. That's an over-engineered system. Yeah, it's, it's not great, but it's, it's cool. I guess it's a cool idea. So both sides of the butt plate and the throw are connected by a rod that goes all the way, three rods that go mm-hmm. all the way through the drum. And what's weird is like if you see these on American drums, if it's like a parallel system, there's some sort of like mechanism on both sides that holds extended wires. Mm-hmm. So they go up and down equally. So that's, I guess that's kind of the idea. Um, Interesting. Original stay, I think stay bill, plastic drum heads. It's like got a fake kind of uh, coating on it to make it look like it's white, which it's definitely not. It's just like dusting, a dusting of coating. Yeah, <laughs> dusting of coating. <laughs> Sounds like a Bright Eyes album. Quite an interesting kit. Yeah, so this is, um, you know, if you put like some time into it, like put some better heads on it and maybe get the edges. Re- edges are factory, but yeah. maybe get them sharpened up. You probably have a cool kit. Oh, one other thing. This is a 12 by 9 Tom. Yeah, that looks like a deep, deep boy. Yeah, usually they're 12 by 8. But again, I think we had that other that mystery kit that was a deep rock tom, wasn't that one? Remember the one that was like foil? Mm. We were talking about two podcasts ago. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but kind of another neat thing. So. I had a fifteen. I remember that, right? Yeah. So this is a deep. Is that sixteen by sixteen? Yeah, sixteen by sixteen. Twenty fourteen, nine twelve, sixteen by sixteen. I think this is a four and a half by 14 snare drum. I often wonder, were they just like looking at pictures and guessing? Like, I guess that's what we'll make. Were there no samples of what a drum set is? Well, (laughs) I think, I I don't know the first thing about drum making. Um, But I think the way now, like there are machines that do all like, but like, it's it's really interesting. Like we talked about the, seeing some of like the hand marking on the drums. Like this stuff used to be made by hand by a guy. Yeah. Gary. Yeah, right. Gary who worked Gary the drums. <laughs> Gary from Derry. Yeah, the re-rings are really kind of odd. Like like Gary's having a bad day or whatever. He's, he's hung over and like, you know, marks it in the wrong spot and it's Friday and, you know, he wants to go drink beer with his buddies. Who cares? Yeah, you, you end know up with I mean? a 12 by 9 instead of a 12 by 8. Yeah, we, I mean, I had a standard. We did that standard segment. I had a standard snare drum, I think I told you one time. And I got it in and it sounded horrible. And I'm like, what's going on with this? And I, I took the top head off, and they drilled the bearing edges on the wrong side. <laughs> you had the snare beds on the top? They, well, it was the snare beds on both sides. <laughs> so, like, you know, it, so, it's kind of, it's, I don't know, I think it, it's like, obviously that's not good, but I think it's kind of neat, thus, like, making stuff by hand yeah. and you know it's like the machinery the, old, uh, the the baseball cards that had the errors the error cards the error card the blem <laughs> the blem <laughs> except all the drums are blem the billy rick the real billy ripkin remember that one are you too young for that billy ripkin how old his rookie that? card no, it's been like 88 it's someone had put f face on the butt of his bat he didn't know it <laughs> oh my god and they printed it and that's absolutely incredible then they had to go back and do a bunch of edits but yeah you can still find the f face billy ripkin <laughs> you know that card. guy got fired <laughs> So this isn't quite an F face. No. But. Yeah, it's, it's cool. Um, we're going to try to get it tuned up and do a demo to see if we can get it sounding. But there's not a whole lot you can do with stable plastic heads, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So your tendency is to leave it and let the customer decide. Right? Yeah. I mean, it really depends. I mean, like, I don't know. It's kind of most of the heads were original. Like, 
may as well leave it like it is. Mm-hmm. If it takes heads and you know people can know, you know, we can just put new heads on it. I don't think it's a big deal. Some people like to hear videos. Um, I mean, but it, not to get down the video rabbit hole. You know, we could do a video and then you get it in your house. It sounds completely different. Right, of but, course. Yeah, just kind of like part of the story, you know, good old Stuart. Stuart Kaufman. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Dairy drums. First I've ever seen. We'll see what it sounds like. Here we go. <laughs> That's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you like the show, please drop a five-star rating and write us a review over on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, make sure you're subscribing to our YouTube channel, Drum Factor Direct. I'm posting all these episodes over there in video form. Um, yeah, thanks for, again for listening. Make sure you check out Jonathan Barber's new record, Poetic, drops on May 13th. Go check out some of the drums at Hawthorne Drum Shop. Make sure you go over to drumfactordirect.com to check out any parts or accessories or special deals. We currently have a practice pad and drumstick combo that I think is $24.99 for a nice two-sided practice pad and some drumsticks. There's always some specials going on over there at drumfactordirect.com. Um, yeah, thanks for listening. See you next week.